Well, great to be with you here tonight. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a staff worker at UWA, and I've been doing the talks over NYC this year. Uh, the students who are here have got booklets, and I think we're on page 13 for the outline. Hopefully, if you're a visitor when you came in, uh, you got an outline, but I'm conscious that we ran out because there are so many people here tonight. Uh, it's terrific. And if you've got a Bible with you, it'll be helpful to balance that on your knee as well and uh, keep it open at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, in the 1960s, a man called Donald Unger started cracking his knuckles. But he only ever cracked them on his left hand, never on his right. But every day, he cracked every knuckle on his left hand at least twice. And he did it for 50 years. And then he stopped. In 1963, the Spaniard, Jose Manuel Rodriguez Delgado, uh, isn't that a great Spanish name? He stepped into a bull ring in Cordoba and he started waving a red cape at a bull. He wasn't a professional bullfighter, but he deliberately antagonised the bull until it charged straight at him. On December 14, 1986, an Italian called Maurizio Montalbini entered the Frassasi Caves of the Apennine Mountains. And for the next 210 days, he lived in pitch darkness and total isolation, surviving on nothing except powdered foods and vitamin pills. And on December 6, 1992, he did it again, except this time he spent an entire year underground. People do crazy things, don't they? All sorts of crazy people doing crazy things including the Apostle Paul. Come and have a look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 5, but we'll go to 2 Corinthians 11 to start with. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Some of you are um, contemplating graduating and getting jobs and you're thinking about writing resumes. Well, this is Paul's resume. Chapter 11, verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now, imagine if you went off travelling uh, for a year and you sent an email like this back to your parents. <laughs> Dear Mum and Dad, just thought you might like to know what I've been up to. 
What would they think? What would their reaction would be? Would they think, that's my boy, that's my girl, finally fulfilling their potential? (laughs) I don't think so. It looks crazy, doesn't it? And many of Paul's contemporaries thought he was crazy. Come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. We'll, We'll be here for the rest of the night. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Paul says, if we are out of our mind, as some say. And having read his resume in chapter 11, it's not hard to understand why some might say he's out of his mind. But to understand why people do what they do, it's often not enough just to look at their actions, is it? You can't always figure out why they're doing what they're doing. You've got to understand their motives. See, why did Donald Unger crack every knuckle on his left hand twice a day for 50 years, but never on his right? Well, it's because he was a doctor and he wanted to test the theory that cracking your knuckles gives you arthritis. So he cracked his knuckles every day, twice a day, for 50 years. At the end of the 50 years, he scanned his left hand and his right hand, and guess what? No difference. Cracking your knuckles does nothing. So crack away. (laughs) Why did Jose Delgado taunt a bull to charge at him, even though he wasn't a professional bullfighter? Well, he did it because he was a professor of physiology who was experimenting on the effect of electrical impulses in the brain. He'd implanted a little transmitter in the bull's brain, uh, in the caudate nucleus, the part that controls voluntary movement, And at the last moment, he pressed a button on his remote control and the charging bull stopped dead in its tracks, turned around and trotted away. His discoveries have led to treatments for Parkinson's disease. And why did Maurizio Montalbini spend all that time underground in darkness? Well, turns out he was sponsored by NASA who were studying the effects of long-term isolation on weight loss and time perception and sleep cycles so they could better look after their astronauts. See, it's not good enough just to look at people's actions. You've got to understand their motives. What about Paul? What were his motives for doing what he did? Did he have any? Or was he just crazy? Well, Paul says he doesn't mind doing crazy stuff, verse 13, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. But he does want us to know that he's not actually out of his mind. He's not crazy at all. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. But it's in verses 14 and 15 that he really gets to the heart of the matter, where he explains his motives. You can see it there in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. See, Paul wants us to know that he's living this crazy life not because he's insane or because someone else is forcing him to, but because he is compelled. He's compelled to. I mean, I suppose that could sound like someone is forcing you to do it against your will or or you're just crazy, sort of obsessive-compulsive, I'm, I'm just compelled because my mind is not working properly. But no, Paul says more than that. 
He wants us to know that he's not doing it against his will or because he's irrational, but because Christ's love has grabbed hold of him. It compels him because he is convinced, he says. He's convinced. He's weighed things up and he's come to a settled, rational conclusion about them. And he thinks that if you understand his convictions, you'll understand him. More than that, if you understand his convictions, if you come to share them, you actually might decide to live the same kind of crazy life that he has. So what are Paul's convictions? What's convinced him to live this crazy life? Well, verse 14, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. One died for all. Uh, By this far uh, through MYC, you ought to be able to work out who the one is, shouldn't you? Uh, It's Christ, of course. Christ died for all. We saw that last night, that Christ came to die as a lamb for the sins not just of one man or a family or even the whole nation of Israel, but for the world. Quote 1 John 2 2, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What motivates Paul is his conviction that one died for all. But it's more than that. He's convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, he says. Now, the first bit sounds fine. We're we're fine with that. One died for all. We get that. Jesus died in my place. But the second bit sounds wrong, doesn't it? Therefore all died? Didn't we sing before, one with himself, I cannot die? And yet Paul seems to be saying that Jesus died and therefore... I died too. Not that I will die, but I've already died. And not just me, but everyone. How can that be right? I mean, you don't look dead. A little cold, perhaps. (laughs) But not dead, not yet. (laughs) So how can Paul say that you die? Not some died, or all will die, but all died. Everyone, past tense, died. What can that possibly mean? Well, think of it this way. When Christ died, what happened? Well, one thing that happened was that God passed a verdict on your life and on the life of everyone who has ever lived or will ever live. See, if Christ died for all, if he died in their place, that means everyone deserves to die. There's no ambiguity about what God thinks of your life. There's no mystery about how you will go under your own steam. If Christ suffered God's wrath in your place... 
If he went through hell in your place, if he died in your place, then you can see God's verdict on you and me and everyone else just by looking at the cross. We can't fool ourselves anymore about how we might go on the day of judgment. Oh, you know, maybe if I, I try a bit harder or I, I do some more religious stuff, maybe if I work really hard at being a good person, you know, maybe uh, go on exchange and help build some houses for people or something like that, then, then God will really will think I'm okay. No, the cross shows me God's verdict on all my efforts, on my delusions about being the centre of the universe, my bizarre idea that I know good and evil, God doesn't. My deep-seated belief that, yeah, I'm, I'm probably okay with God. No, God's verdict on us was passed on the cross and his verdict is death. If Christ died for you, then what he got is God's verdict on your life. But I think there is more to it than that. See, if Christ died for all and therefore all died, then it's not just that the verdict has been passed. The sentence has been served. Because Christ died for us, it's as though we've all died and served our sentence. And that's not just true for Christians, says Paul. It's true for all. One died for all. And therefore, all died. Some of you are probably getting a little nervous at the moment. The idea that Christ died for all, that he served everyone's sentence. You might be mentally collecting wood to burn me at the stake because you're thinking, hang on a minute. If Ben's saying that Christ has served everyone's sentence, then he must be saying that everyone is automatically saved, regardless of whether they trust Jesus or not. But no, put down the firewood. That's not what I'm saying, uh, and neither is Paul. See, if Paul believed that everyone was automatically saved because Christ has died for them, that in his death they have died, well, he wouldn't be living this crazy life to tell them about it, would he? He'd just kick back at home and put on the footy. No, people aren't automatically saved. We need to trust Jesus to get the benefits of what he's done. But it is still true to say that Christ really did die for everyone and that their sentence really has been served. If you're still nervous about that, let me quote a theologian you might have heard of, a guy called John Calvin. He says, The promises of the gospel make offer of the grace of Christ equally to all. And God, by the external call invites all who are willing to accept of salvation. Of course, people need to accept the offer. But the offer is real. And it's based on what Christ has really done. He's died for everyone. In him, the verdict on humanity has been passed and the sentence has been served. Christ has paid for our sins. It's as though we've died and served our sentence already. But why did he do it? Why did the Son of God die for our sin? 
What was his motive? Well, we've already seen one in verse 14, haven't we? That Christ's love compels us. Christ died because he loves us. And secondly, verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Kind of sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it, when you stop and think about it? He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ died so that you would live for him. Is that arrogant? Well, it might sound arrogant to us, but it's actually loving for him to do that. Because living for ourselves is what got us into this mess in the first place. Living for ourselves is not all it's cracked up to be. Living for ourselves is death and judgment. That's what it deserves. It ruins our relationship with God and with everyone else. It sends us to hell. Now, living for Christ is what we were made for. Living for Christ is what is most excellent and most wonderful for us. Christ's love motivates him to die for us so that we'll no longer live for ourselves but for the one who died for us. I mean, why would you live for yourself anymore anyway? You're dead. You've already been condemned on the cross. Living for yourself is a highway to hell. So who are you going to live for? You're going to live for me? No, don't do that. I'm dead too. Are you going to live for your boyfriend or your girlfriend? For your boyfriend or your girlfriend that you hope one day to have? For your husband or your wife? <laughs> Some of you have got stronger hopes than others. <laughs> Are you going to live for your parents? You're going to live for the person you one day hope to become? No, don't do that. They're all dead. They were all condemned on the cross. Don't let your life revolve around them. So who are you going to live for? Well, there's actually only one person worth living for, isn't there? The one who died for you and was raised again. The one who died for us is the only one who is worth living for. He's the only one who didn't deserve to die. His resurrection shows that, that God raised him from the dead, reversing what had happened, saying, my son did not deserve to die. And at the same time, he was absolutely right to die. He is the only one worth living for. So now that Jesus lives, what are you going to do? Are you going to shrug your shoulders and just walk away from that? No, don't do that. That would be crazy. You don't walk away from someone who loves you like that. But it does raise the question of whether you've actually grasped the reality of that. Have you grasped that one died for all and therefore all died? Have you grasped Jesus' love for you? Has Jesus' love grasped you? Perhaps you've just been living for yourself with the world revolving around you just like everyone else does. Or maybe you've been living for your family or friends. 
but it's still your family or friends that you've been living for. It still revolves around you. But the cross is God's verdict on that self-centred life. That self-centred life deserves death, hell, the wrath of God. You're still living that way? Don't do that. That's crazy. No, one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. If you've never told God that you want to trust Jesus for that, that you want to accept his death to make you right with him, then why not make tonight the night that you do that? It's not hard. All you need to do is talk to God, out loud or in your head, doesn't matter, and say, God, I'm sorry for living in rebellion against you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Please help me to live for him. If you've never done that before, why not make tonight the night that you do that? Give up your life. It's already been condemned. And trust Jesus who died and was raised again. Let him be the centre of your life. But don't do it just yet. Because if you grasp God's love for you in Christ, it will turn your life upside down. I should warn you about that. It will turn your life upside down. Because that's what love does, isn't it? See, one of the perks of student ministry is that you get to see a greater than average number of people fall in love. Uh, And it is a hoot, I have to say. That shy guy, the awkward guy who only ever grunts. The self-absorbed nerd who can only talk about computers and comics. You know who you are. (laughs) No, you probably don't. (laughs) But they meet a girl. They fall in love. And suddenly they start talking about weird things like... feelings (laughs) and not just tired, hungry and itchy. (laughs) They start using complete sentences. They start paying attention to personal hygiene. They leave their computer behind to talk to a real live human being. And girls, the girls who seem so sensible to have such good taste... They suddenly fall for that awkward, nerdy guy and they start talking about operating systems and how 2017 is really going to be the year of Linux on the desktop. Now, usually I'm the last one to find out when anything like this happens. Uh, No one tells me anything. But when I do finally find out, I think, no way. (laughs) That guy? That girl? But there you go. As Andrew Lloyd Webber said, love, love changes everything. And Christ's love in dying for us changes how Paul thinks about Christ, how he thinks about himself and how he thinks about everyone else. Have a look at verses 16 and 17 with me. 
verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. See, Paul used to view Jesus as a fraud, a deceiver. But now he no longer regards him from a worldly point of view. He realises that Christ is not a fraud, not even just a good teacher, a wise man, not even just a prophet. Now he sees that Jesus is the Christ. He really is the Christ, the Messiah who died for him and was raised again. He suddenly understands that God loves him more than he could possibly have imagined. And because of that, Paul sees himself differently too. He sees himself as being in Christ, joined to him by faith. Paul had plenty of experiences with ships, uh, not all of them good, as you can see from his resume. But he does know that when you're in a ship, what happens to the ship happens to you. If you're in a ship and it goes from Ephesus to Caesarea then you go from Ephesus to Caesarea too. Not by your own effort, but simply by being in the ship. And he says it's the same with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, in him, united to him by faith, and Christ has travelled from death to life, from the old creation to the new, then so have you. Sure, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Sure, it didn't always feel like the journey was going so well for Paul when he was in a ship either. But if we're in Christ, this is what has happened to us. may not feel like that, but who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust you and your feelings? Or are you going to trust what God says? See, trusting ourselves rather than God, that's actually the essence of sin, isn't it? It's what went wrong all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Satan wanted Adam and Eve to trust their own judgment instead of listening to God. And he still wants us to do the same. To doubt God's word that if we're in Christ by faith, then we really are a new creation. Satan is desperate that you do not believe that. He wants you to believe that the old has never gone, the new has never come. He wants you to believe that you're the same as you ever were, spiritually dead, powerless to resist sin, doomed to trudge through life without ever making any progress, believing that sin will always win and so there's really no point fighting it and you might as well give in now. Satan wants us to believe that the old is here and the new has never come. But Satan is a liar and he always has been. God is the one who speaks the truth and he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're not under the power of Satan and sin and death anymore, so don't live for them. Live for the one who died for you and rose again. The one in whom you died and now live. 
So Paul says we no longer regard Christ or ourselves from a worldly point of view, but if one died for all and therefore all died, then we can't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. I mean, how could we? We've seen that the verdict on their life has already been passed. Their sentence has been served. No one should be living for themselves. Everyone alive should be living for the one who died for them. As you walk around uni or work or wherever, everyone you look at, everyone you come across, everyone you see, Christ died for them. The homeless guy at the train station, the mum trying to get through the shopping with her kids in tow, the sporting superstar, the successful businesswoman who looks like she's got it all together, the vice-chancellor of your university, the prime minister, all of them, every single one, they're dead. God's verdict has been passed. Their sentence has been served. And yet most of them are living as though it never happened. They're still living for themselves as, uh, instead of the one who died for them, living as though they are God. And sometimes as a Christian, you feel like you're crazy, don't you? You feel like, man, am I the only one? I'm walking around here and uh, no one else is living as though Jesus died for them. You feel like you're the inmate in the asylum. But you're not the one who thinks you're God. That's everyone else. That's crazy, isn't it? Now, Christ died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. So what are we going to do? Well, here's what Paul does back in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Why is Paul living this crazy life, these beatings, these shipwrecks, prison? Well, it's because he is desperately trying with all the strength that God gives him to persuade others of the truth of what's happened. Not to brainwash them, not to bribe them, not to threaten them or or promise them their best life now, but to try to persuade them. Persuade them of the truth that one died for all and therefore all died. That's what Paul's on about. Because that's what God is on about. That's what Christ is on about. Christ was willing to suffer and die to bring about this reconciliation, this forgiveness between us and God. And so Paul is willing to suffer and die to persuade people of that reality, to bring them in to take up that offer of reconciliation. It's not some emotionless intellectual exercise. See verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's not some abstract puzzle or something that God decided to do. He's emotionally invested in this. And so is Paul. Through Paul, God is appealing to the whole world. Through Paul, Christ is imploring everyone, be reconciled to God. See, at first 
glance, Paul's life looks crazy. But when you understand his motives, when you understand the reasoning behind it, it's the most sane thing in the world, isn't it? Yeah, he goes to crazy lengths to bring the gospel to others, but if you understand his motives, well, they're actually not that crazy at all. They're the only reasonable thing to do. But then what about us? I mean, Paul is kind of a unique guy, isn't he? Uh, He's actually seen the resurrected Jesus. He's been specially commissioned by him as an apostle. Um, Is this kind of life that Paul's talking about, is it just for someone like him? Well, does his reasoning only apply to him? Or does the logic hold for us too? See, are you convinced that one died for all and therefore all died? If so, does it make any sense for you to keep living for yourself? as though the world revolves around you instead of around Christ? If you're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, you can't possibly live that way anymore, can you? That's not just a hardcore apostle thing. That's just true for every Christian. It's just reality. About six months from now, our God and Cricket Australia being willing... I hope to be sitting at the Wacker watching Australia defeat England in the ashes, Uh, imagining myself out there in the middle playing for my country, playing glorious cover strokes all the way to the boundary. But did you know that 135 years ago in the test match where Australia did defeat England and the Sporting Times cremated some bales in commemoration of the death of English cricket... There was a young man out in the middle playing for his country in his very first test match. It was a 22-year-old Englishman by the name of Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd. His name's engraved on the original Ashes urn. Now, C.T. Studd was an extraordinarily privileged young man. He was born into a seriously wealthy family, educated at Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge selected for the English cricket team at the age of 22. He had everything this life has to offer. And two years later, two years after his debut, he threw it all away. Why? Well, he tells us. He wrote, I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I'd never understood that if he died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. And when I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, It didn't seem hard to give up all for him. It seemed just common, ordinary honesty. C.T. Studd and six of his friends from Cambridge, they became known as the Cambridge Seven, left their lives of privilege and caught a boat for China so they could share the gospel. They'd had the world at their feet, but they turned their back on it, left it behind because they were convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. When I first started uni, there was a guy in the CU who eventually became the youth pastor of his church. Very cool guy. Um, I really admired him. Good-looking, very eligible bachelor, uh, running a great youth group. Uh, And in terms of Christian ministry, he had the world at his feet. And then he left it all behind to move to Yemen to tell people about Jesus. 
I don't know if you know much about Yemen, but it's one of the poorest, most inhospitable, gospel-hostile countries in the world. It was a crazy thing to do. But he was convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. I was chatting to him once when he was back on sabbatical and I asked him if he ever wondered whether he he should have stayed, would he have uh, had more of an impact if he'd stayed there as youth leader. And he said, you know what? I was a better youth leader by leaving than I ever was by staying. While I was there, the kids were just cruising along, happy to have Jesus as part of their lives but making no real sacrifices. But when I left, they realised that they couldn't live for themselves anymore with Jesus tacked on the edge. That's not what it means to be Christian. He was right. One of those kids left and became a missionary in Bulgaria. Others are pastors in churches around Perth. Some became teachers to share the gospel with kids. Others are working to share Christ with their work colleagues they saw someone who had grasped the same thing that the Apostle Paul had, who was convinced by the same thing, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. So what about you? Are you convinced? If you are, what are you going to do with your life? Most of you, God willing, have many years stretching out in front of you. What are you going to do with your life? Now, I'm conscious that there is a danger in saying all this because I am trying to persuade you to give up your lives. Uh, And I don't want to motivate you for the wrong reasons. I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want you to give up your lives to please me, uh, as if anyone of you would be persuaded to do that. I don't want you to give up your lives because it might make you look hardcore. As though you're not saved by grace, but by your hardcoreness. (laughs) No, I don't want you to feel like God will be more pleased with you if you move to outer Mongolia to preach the gospel than if you stay here in Perth working a secular job. You're not saved by grace. You're saved by grace. It was going to happen at some point, wasn't it? (laughs) You're saved by grace, not by works. Also, I am conscious that some of you have parents here and they're getting nervous and they're calculating how much it costs to fly to outer Mongolia to visit their future grandchildren. (laughs) I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to motivate you for the wrong reasons. But I do want to persuade you that if one died for all, and therefore all died, that you can no longer live for yourself. The only one it makes any sense to live for is Jesus. And what's Jesus on about? He's on about the salvation of the world, isn't he? He's on about the glory of God. That's why he came. And if you live a life that is based around him, well, yes, that... Life might look crazy. It might look crazy to your family and friends. It might mean giving up your career to go and preach the gospel in outer Mongolia. It might mean giving up a career in Australia to share the gospel in Europe, like Matt's been talking about. 
to try and persuade some of the most hard-hearted people in the world that they really need Jesus. Or it could mean going and teaching the kids of missionaries in Indonesia so that their parents can tell others about Jesus. It might mean never marrying so that you have more time to spend serving Jesus. It might mean getting a secular job but drastically limiting the amount of money you spend on yourself so you can support gospel ministry. You could do that, you know. There's nothing that says you've got to spend as much as you earn. When you get your first full-time job, you'll have more money than you could possibly imagine. And I know you can imagine quite a bit. But don't spend it on yourself. Live frugally and give the rest to gospel ministry. Or spend the money that you earn on your non-Christian friends. Throw parties for them. Invite them over for dinner so you can get to know them and share the gospel of Jesus with them. But how are you going to decide to do all this? Well, for one thing, we ought to do it prayerfully, shouldn't we? If we're living for the one who died for us, if our lives revolve around him, we shouldn't just do it off our own backs. We should be calling on God in prayer to give us wisdom, to help us choose wisely how we can serve him. And for another thing, I don't think we should do it as a momentary snap decision amidst the hype and excitement of NYC. When it's a little bit late and you're a little bit tired and your defences are down. No, living for Christ is not a momentary thing. It's a direction that you set. A direction that you choose and keep choosing. And that's going to involve making concrete decisions. How are you going to serve Jesus? How would you like to serve him? Just think of the possibilities. You've got, God willing, your whole life before you. How could you maximise the abilities that God has given you, the opportunities, the time, the money, the brains to serve him? Don't think, well, how far do I need to go to be counted as having done enough? Think, how far could I go? What could I do for Jesus? That will involve making concrete decisions. Who do you need to talk to? What information do you need to find out? Where could you be in a year's time, in five years' time, in ten years' time, in 50 years' time? You need to think about those sort of things. But they need to be decisions that we make, not in some momentary fit of craziness, but because you're compelled by Christ's love, because you're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and rose again. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us, shown in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for us and that therefore we've all died. Father, please change our hearts and our minds 
that we no longer want to live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us and was raised again. Lord, change us so that our lives no longer revolve around us, but around him. And Father, we pray that you would use us to do wonderful things for you and for your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.